I'm Barnaby Rain. I'm sitting in Michael Walker's chair. This is Tiski Sauer. We've got a lot of news to cover tonight. I'm joined by Dahlia Gabriel. Dahlia, welcome. Hi, Barnaby. I'll just ignore the sounds of Michael screaming and scratching at the door that, that we can that I'm hearing right now. He's fine. He's fine, guys. Don't worry. Boris Johnson is not the first criminal in Downing Street, but he is the first prime minister in British history found by the police to have broken the law while in office. Johnson, his wife Carrie, and Rishi Sunak have all been fined by the Metropolitan Police for breaching COVID lockdown restrictions. But the real crime is greater. Thousands died unnecessarily because Johnson dithered and delayed while other countries introduced lockdowns. Let the bodies pile high, he allegedly said. NHS doctors lacked proper equipment because our government handed crucial COVID contracts not to experts, but to their friends like the pub landlord given £40 million to make COVID tests because his neighbour was the health secretary. Then, Boris Johnson sat in the Downing Street garden and told grieving families he was doing everything to limit the spread of COVID just days after partying in that same garden. We all knew Johnson was guilty. We all knew he didn't consider himself subject to the laws he imposed on the rest of us. We all knew that while we endured isolation, missing our friends and loved ones, and in some cases denied the right to say goodbye to our dying relatives, Johnson was living it up at our expense. We knew it, despite the many, many, many times he brazenly lied to us and to Parliament. What I can tell the right honourable gentleman is that, uh, is that all guidance was followed uh, completely during number 10. Was it a party where the guidelines were followed or was it not a party? It, it, the, I can tell you that the guidelines were followed at all times. Well, you, did you investigate I, that yourself? Have you satisfied yourself that I that is I have satisfied the myself that the guidelines were followed. I understand and share the anger up and down the country at seeing number 10 staff seeming to make light of lockdown measures. And I can understand how infuriating it must be to think that the people who have been setting the rules have not been following the rules, Mrs. Speaker, because I was also furious to see that clip. And Mrs. Speaker, I apologise. I apologise unreservedly for the offence that it has caused up and down the country, and I apologise for the impression that it gives. All the evidence I can see is that uh, people in this building have stayed uh, within the rules. If that turns out not to be the case, and, and people wish to bring uh, allegations to uh, to my attention or to the to the police or, or whoever, uh, then of course uh, there will be a proper sanction. You hosted a Christmas party quiz with groups of people in various rooms in number 10 uh, when such things were banned. Have you asked Simon Case to investigate you? I can tell you once again that I certainly broke no rules. Uh, all that is being looked into. Did you and Carrie attend the Downing Street party that was organised by Martin Reynolds on the 20th of May? All, all of that, as you know, is the subject of a, uh, a proper uh, investigation by Sue Gray. So have you already been interviewed by Sue Gray? And if not, do you object to her questioning you again about this? Uh, all that is subject for an interview, for an investigation by Sue Gray. Having been exposed as a fraud and a liar, Johnson did finally own up and he offered this excuse. I've received a fixed penalty notice from the Metropolitan Police relating to an event in Downing Street on the 19th of June 2020. And let me say immediately that I've paid the fine and I once again offer a full apology. And in a spirit of openness and humility, I want to be completely clear about what happened on that date. My day began shortly after 7 a.m. and I chaired eight meetings in number 10, including the Cabinet Committee deciding COVID strategy. I visited a school in Hemel Hempstead, which took me out of Downing Street for over four hours. And amongst all these engagements on a day that happened to be my birthday, there was a brief gathering in the Cabinet Room shortly after 2 p.m., lasting for less than 10 minutes, during which people I work with kindly passed on uh, their good wishes. And I have to say, in all frankness, at that time, it did not occur to me uh, that this might have been a breach of the rules. But of course, the police have found otherwise, and I 
fully respect the outcome of their investigation. I understand the anger that many will feel that I myself fell short when it came to observing the very rules which the government I lead had introduced to protect the public. And I accept in all sincerity that people had the right to expect better. And now I feel an even greater sense of obligation to deliver on the priorities of the British people. You heard that right. Breaking the law gave him an even greater sense of wanting to serve the British public. I would love to see him try that out in a court of law. But Johnson knows, just like Prince Andrew and Tony Blair, the parasite and the war criminal, that he will never face the consequences for his crimes in a court of law. Compare it to this case, reported by Tristan Kirk in early April. A teenage key worker has been ordered to pay almost £500 by a court after he admitted breaking lockdown rules last January. The Bexley resident, 19, was in a car with three friends and admitted he was relaxing from the stress and misery of shifts at the co-op during the pandemic. The teenager even wrote to the judge, saying, To whom it may concern, I'm writing to you to accept full responsibility and regret of this charge. Understanding of the COVID restrictions at the time and from being in employment throughout lockdown, I was under stress and misery from all my shifts. Since this incident and easing of restrictions, I've been pushing to grow my career. I'm filled with shame and apologize for my actions. I'm asking if you would please take these factors into account. Thank you. So here we have a very young man, a teenager, on the cusp of adult life. During the lockdown, he was employed as a key worker, risking his health and that of his loved ones, working in a supermarket. Yes, he broke the rules and was caught, but he admitted his guilt. We don't know why he didn't pay the fine, perhaps because he couldn't afford to. And you can hear in his statement the very real fear that this conviction will ruin the adult life he has barely begun. We don't know how much the Prime Minister was fined. This young teenager was fined £500, but the first batch of Downing Street fines were £50, a tenth of what the young man, who sat in a car with some friends eating a meal, will have to pay. Netpol, the network for police monitoring, have reported consistently for two years now that this pandemic has been a bonanza for police surveillance, snooping, and yes, intimidation sometimes. Under lockdown, many people, often black and brown people, found themselves subject to massively increased police powers. Sarah Everard paid the most horrific kind of price. But the Metropolitan Police first stalled on investigating Downing Street parties. Then they issued the Prime Minister's fine and the Chancellor's while Parliament is in recess ensuring that Johnson would not be held to account by MPs. The police protect wealth and power. The public, at least, aren't buying it. According to a YouGov poll, 75% of the public believe that Johnson knowingly lied to Parliament about lockdown breaches in Parliament. And there were fewer people who thought he didn't lie than those who had no opinion on the matter. Nearly 60% of respondents thought that Johnson should resign as Prime Minister for having broken the law. And now, someone has resigned. Someone else, of course. David Wolfson was, until this afternoon, a justice minister. In his resignation letter, he wrote, I regret that recent disclosures lead to the inevitable conclusion that there was repeated rule-breaking and breaches of the criminal law in Downing Street. He's a lawyer, David Wolfson. I have again, with considerable regret, come to the conclusion that the scale, context, and nature of those breaches mean that it would be inconsistent with the rule of law for that conduct to pass with constitutional impunity, especially when many in society complied with the rules at great personal cost and others were fined or prosecuted for similar and sometimes apparently more trivial offenses. I sort of know David Wolfson. He sometimes attends my synagogue. So he's a man of God. And even as a Tory, he's a man of God. He has some moral standards. Dahlia, the Prime Minister, his wife, and our billionaire Chancellor have all admitted to breaking the law. Will anything come of it? When the news first broke about these party fines, I, I thought a lot about, along the similar lines to you, Barnaby, about what it means for a political party whose bread and butter is essentially law and order to, at the same time, be so adept and brazen at breaking the law. You know, we wonder how a prime minister that has routinely posed in front of rows of cops, who describes himself as the prime minister of law and order, who has made a huge political career out of uh, stigmatizing and criminalizing people of color, 
how he can square not only breaking the law, but brazenly breaking the law. You know, these weren't secret parties that happened in the dead of night. These were parties that were publicized in emails that the press, I'm sure, knew were taking place that, you know, had hundreds of happened with hundreds of people, people's knowledge. And there was no sense amongst the establishment that breaking the very laws, the very rules that they have set for everyone else was in any way a contradictory or unusual thing to happen. And that's because, in a sense, it isn't. Because let's be real, this is not the first or the most extreme example of someone with state power in this country doing something illegal. The Iraq War, Grenfell, etc. These are all examples with far much higher stakes attached to them. And that's because this law and order of law and order politics, it's not a neutral tool that is just applied to everyone. Law and order is exclusively a tool that is used by the rich and powerful to discipline the less powerful. It's a signal in a kind of campaigning political sense. It's a signal to the upper middle classes, to the upper classes, to the property and business owners that, you know, we will make sure that your assets are protected from increasingly desperate masses, and then to everyone else, to people who might not own property and business. Law and order politics is basically a way of drumming up fear of those less powerful or worse off than they are. So it's drumming up fear against the gang or the migrant or you know whatever the next sort of moral panic surrounds. And so the establishment weaponized this kind of rhetoric because they know that they offer nothing genuine to everyday people economically, they offer nothing genuine politically and nothing genuine culturally. And so their sole route into people's consciousness is to play on this idea of providing law and order, providing security, and being this firm hand against a kind of imagined disorder, um, a disorder that is often very heavily racialized, that is, you know, very sexualized, etc. And so in that context, the idea that the law and order party don't see themselves as rich and powerful people as being subjects of that law and order, that's not contradictory at all. It's actually entirely consistent with the purpose of law and order politics. And so that's why, you know, the reason I bring this up is not only to kind of clarify what we are seeing unfold before our eyes, but it's also something that we need to reflect on as the left. I would argue that because of these reasons, law and order will never be able to be appropriated by the left for productive ends because the law and order system is not an effective tool of accountability against those who wield power because that was never the point of it. And we see this in the frankly laughable image of Rishi Sunak, whose wife is richer than the queen, getting a fine of what, £10,000 maximum? That's literally what someone like him would could spend on a big night out. Like You compare that with the consequences that were felt by that young man that you described earlier on in the segment, or to the, the dozens of teenagers who had their entire lives ruined because they were caught stealing a pair of trainers in the 2011 riots, you know, despite what the law and order left, you know, the Paul Masons of the world, et cetera, despite what they say, the history and the politics that is embedded in law and order, it's not for us and it's not by us and it never will be for us or by us. We need to find a fundamentally different language not only with which people can feel safe, but also more importantly, with which the powerful can be held to account. And that's why this entire debacle, you know, and the fines that it's culminated in ultimately feels like such an anticlimax, because we all know that the hypocrisy and the fundamental issue of power and accountability of which, you know, this party gate scandal is literally the tiniest tip of an iceberg that is so big you can't even imagine, that has remained intact. And so that's why, despite justice seemingly being done, and even if these fines are paid, we don't feel any differently. We don't feel empowered by that because the whole entire system of law and order as it exists is a tool that the Boris Johnsons and the Rishi Sunaks of the world use. It is something to which we are subject to. It is not something that they can ever be subject to. That's not how it's designed, in a sense. Only weeks ago, 
Tories were saying that Johnson would have to resign if he was found to have broken the law over Partygate. Now, he has been found to have broken the law. So what are they saying? Literally anything to keep him in office. Transport Minister Grant Shapps had the unenviable task of defending the indefensible on the morning news shows. Here he is talking to Kay Burley. Who should be responsible for the goings-on in Downing Street when on at least 50 separate occasions the law was broken, if not the Prime Minister? Well, even when the Prime Minister wasn't there, he, he's already said he takes full responsibility. So 50 uh, times the law was broken. And, and this was, um, I was going to say, this was two years ago, this particular incident. And, um, you know, since then, he's completely reformed number 10, been very large changes, as you know, in, in personnel. But look, I, I, don't, I, I don't think there's any... Uh, so I personally, when I heard about these goings-on, was very upset. I didn't think I'd see my dad again. You know, I think that a lot of people in the country will have felt the, the same way about it. It absolutely shouldn't happen. It's incredibly serious and quite rightly exactly. uh, that's been recognised and fines been paid. Who's responsible, Mr Sharp? Who's responsible for at least 50 rule breaks, law breaks at Downing Street? Well, obviously individuals who... who, who so not the Prime Minister, the, the he doesn't have Prime overall Minister. responsibility? No, of course he does. Okay, so he's responsible for 50 times the law being broken in Downing Street? And yet he still remains in honour. Was his honour? Many, many of those times he won't have been there, but nonetheless, he says himself he takes overall responsibility, and I think of that's course. absolutely the right thing for him to do. 75% of the public feel that he continually and deliberately lied. How can he remain in office as an honourable man? I'm guessing from what you're saying, you think he is an honourable man. It, I do. I'm not saying that the Prime Minister... Uh, isn't a flawed individual. We're all flawed in different ways. We all err. Uh, the question is, did somebody set out to do these things with malice? And actually, overall, is he doing a good job as prime minister? Which is why I do think it's relevant how he performs the rest of his job, the rest of his uh, task. So let's get this straight. Boris Johnson takes full responsibility for the criminal breaches at Downing Street. And his taking responsibility means removing people from office if they broke the law, but not removing himself who broke the law and lied about it in Parliament. Still, though, he wants you to know that he takes personal responsibility for it. Note those words. When right-wingers tell the poor to take personal responsibility, they mean that people's taxes will rise and their benefits will fall, that the public services people rely on will be cut. For the poor, personal responsibility means no support and lots of punishment. For the ruling class, though, personal responsibility means saying sorry and then just moving on. Kay Burley's references to Johnson's honour are especially telling. We know that he's a professional liar and a serial cheat. We know that political expediency rather than principle drove him to campaign for Brexit. We know that he oversaw a government that handed out billions to Tory mates during the pandemic. And we know that at a time when just affording to live is a struggle for many, Boris Johnson did a dodgy deal to spend £800 per roll of wallpaper for his Downing Street flat. But Johnson has the right accent and wears the right suits. So he gets cast as a man of honour, civility, culture. These terms are really all about class. I'm not that interested in whether Johnson is a good person or not. We shouldn't turn questions of politics into questions of ethics. I care who he represents and in whose interests he governs. Many years ago, socialist councillors resisting cuts said better to break the law than break the poor. Johnson, of course, breaks both. So what matters about this story is what it reveals. Even the most basic elements of class society, law, the police, matter in upholding class rule and can sometimes be overlooked when it suits the wealthy. Here's Edwina Curry, former Tory minister. You said that you're pretty sure that Boris Johnson, he did break the rules, he must have broken the rules. Do you mean the ministerial code rules about knowingly misleading parliament? Do you believe that now we know what we know, he's been fined, he did break the law, that you do believe that, as you said quite casually in a way, that, uh, that you think he did break the ministerial code, but actually that in itself shouldn't be enough to make him resign. Is that what you're saying? I just want to be clear. Ramya, I don't care. 
I really don't care. What matters for me and what matters for millions of people in this country is the results we get from our politicians. The results we get from Boris are pretty good. I want to hold him to account for all sorts of things. We'll get to a general election in 2024. Well, let me just put in on the record. Last week, we had a by-election here in the high peak, and we took a seat from Labour, which means we've taken control for the, for the borough from Labour. And everybody had the opportunity to express their viewpoint. And what happened was we won the seat. We actually won it. That's what's happening. I have to say, Edwina, I admire your frankness in saying that, that you don't care if it is the case that a serving prime minister knowingly misled parliament. I mean, what, what, what does that say about where we are today in our political climate, well, that, that, that a former, a former MP can, can say quite calmly... I don't mind a lawbreaker, and I don't care about a liar. Not to be outdone, Michael Fabricant resorted to just making things up. I don't think that at any time... He thought that he was breaking the law. I think that at the time he thought, just like many teachers and uh, nurses, who after a very, very long shift uh, would tend to go back to the staff room and have a quiet drink, um, which is more or less what he has done. You said all those teachers and nurses who were going back to the staff room and having a drink. Um, you, you know more than I do because I haven't heard about this. Oh, well, I do know of some who, who did. And, uh, you know, it's quite natural. I'm not saying they were having a party. I'm not saying that uh, Boris Johnson was having a party. But you see, I, the difficulty... I, I, know, yes. I, I know nurses who... Um, and I don't think they were doing anything wrong. Fine. I mean, they'd worked really hard it, on a long it, shift. Isn't, isn't the distinct... And would go back to the staff room and have a drink. And, uh, and I think that is more or less what has happened on a few of these occasions. See, when Etonians are under attack turn the fire on nurses instead. Of course, nurses were not drinking in the staff rooms after fighting COVID on the wards, but still, it's a telling comparison. Johnson made the laws that banned those nurses from enjoying drinks together after saving lives, then he broke those laws himself. Remember, between March 2020 and May 2021, over 1,500 frontline health workers lost their lives to COVID. The Royal College of Nursing issued this response. Most days, nurses and nursing support workers, when finally finishing a number of unpaid hours well past shift end, will get home, clean their uniforms, shower, and collapse into bed. Throughout the early pandemic, this was often alone for the protection of others, kept away from family, friends, and support networks. These shifts are long, unrelenting, understaffed, and intense. At the end of one of the many hours, days, and years we've worked since recognition of the pandemic, I can assure you that none of us have sought to hang out and have a quiet one in the staff room. There isn't a site in England that would allow alcohol on the premises for any professional to consume during working hours. So there we have it. Etonians under attack. Turn the fire on nurses. It's up to nurses to defend their dignity. Dahlia, what do you make of all this? Firstly, as someone who is the daughter of two frontline workers who were in their late 60s, who worked all throughout the pandemic, I can tell you there was no drinking, there was no socializing. It was actually an incredibly traumatic time that a lot of healthcare workers are going to have to spend a lot of time recovering from, and some may never recover from emotionally and psychologically. But I do think it is important to not just see these parties as individual failings of Boris Johnson. He is not the first. He won't be the last prime minister to be in total contempt of democracy and in contempt of the law. And we know that. How do we know that? We know that by the comfort that he and those around him felt when sending out those party invitations to hundreds of people. You know, we, we know that these invites were sent out by email and dozens of people were CC'd into it. We knew that when we saw Allegra Stratton chortling with journalists about lockdown breaking cocktail parties. That sense of comfort comes from the fact that this kind of thing has happened again and again and again without consequences. It's not a bug, it's a feature of the British state. And I think watching those clips back to back, it's, it's funny because there's a lot of marvel often towards Boris Johnson, particularly amongst very naive liberal journalists who treat him like he's this kind of smooth political operator who has climbed up the ranks through his own wiliness. Um, he can't seem to be to be caught out. He can't see he manages to find a way to stop things being stuck to him. 
And it's sort of a result of his own political savviness or, or something like that. But the exact opposite is actually true. He's actually very, very bad at lying. And he's actually very, very bad at, at covering up these kind of common, what is at this point quite pedestrian uh, forms of corruption that underpin the British state. Other prime ministers, other politicians have generally been a bit better really at covering their tracks and keeping that stuff very much in the shadows. I think what Johnson does in a similar way to Trump is kind of make visible that fundamental contempt with which the political and financial elite hold us by being basically very hard, very bad at hiding that contempt. Because when you look at those ghastly interviews, like these aren't exactly masterful media performances. They're rubbish. That appearance of being Teflon, that appearance of surviving despite doing things that should be unsurvivable politically, is because the prime minister and others like him are literally shielded by layers and layers and layers of institutional protection, whether it's the media choosing not to report on particular things or choosing not to make scandals out of things that are absolutely scandalous, or whether it's the Met Police, or whether it's any of these institutions. All of these institutions work to create that Teflon nature that Johnson's reputation seems to have, and that other conservative politicians, and indeed politicians in the British state in general, seem to have. That resilience is a product of power. It is not Johnson's individual character. And that's why when we critique these kind of scandals, it's important that we don't just focus our critique on him as a kind of exceptional liar or a man of exceptional moral bankruptcy, but rather on the system that not only produced him, but that continues to protect him. Because unless we focus our critique on that, we will never be able to rid ourselves of the Johnsons and the Sunaks, etc. So in that context, we have to ask ourselves, what does justice and accountability actually look like? Does it look like a fine? Does it look like this media circus apology tour? Does it look like a couple of bad headlines? Does it even look like Boris Johnson himself resigning? I would argue that none of those actually amount to justice and accountability because the only pathway to justice and accountability is dismantling that system that creates the Johnsons and the Sunaks and the Blairs and the Thatchers, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's really important to not get too tied up in the individual moral failings of Boris Johnson, even though there are many, but actually what are those institutions that have been complicit in protecting him for all this time? It's those comedic politicians that we've just seen in those clips but it's also institutions that actually have a huge amount of power to govern our everyday lives, of which I would include the press and also the Met Police, who, as we know, were absolutely complicit in the fact that Boris Johnson and his comrades felt so comfortable and felt so able to brazenly break these rules. Not only is the problem here the breaking of the rules, but actually putting people's lives in danger. Like at that point, socializing, you know, in this kind of context, in a party context, was literally an incredibly dangerous thing to do. Our theme tonight is the intimate relationship between class, power and law. So here's another case that sheds light on that relationship. This is Tory MP Imran Ahmad Khan, or at least former Tory MP. The party's now ejected him after he was found guilty of sexually molesting a 15-year-old boy in 2008. According to the victim's court testimony, Khan forced the boy to drink gin before pushing him onto a bed, asking him to watch pornography with him, and groping him. The boy then fled. In their evidence, his parents described him as shaking and inconsolable after the event. Within hours of the verdict, the Conservatives chucked Khan out of the party. But it's a case of too little too late, because during the trial, it emerged that the Tories had known about the case for years. Khan was elected MP for Wakefield in 2019, the first Conservative to hold the seat in nearly 90 years. Before that election, though, the victim contacted the Conservative Party, horrified at the prospect of his abuser entering Parliament. The Guardian reports that the victim said, I explained this and said, he sexually assaulted me when I was a child, when I was 15. He said the woman he spoke to sounded shocked 
and passed him on to someone else who sounded more stern and asked if he had any proof. I said, yes, there's a police report. And she said, well, and that was it. I said, I'm going to contact the police. And she said, well, you do that. The Conservatives claimed they could find no record of that report. So not only did the party not take the victim's complaint seriously, they're saying they didn't even write it down. And it emerged that the Tories also knew that Khan had form as a sexual predator. The Times reports, Khan maintained that his victim was lying, but jurors were told about another attack in which Khan performed a sex act on an aid worker in Pakistan in November 2010. The British High Commission and the Foreign Office was said to have been told about the incident at a guest house, but no action was taken. Sean Larkin, QC for the prosecution, said during legal argument that Khan had not been charged over the incident because of a mere technicality. And it gets worse. Khan tried to stop the press from reporting on the case. Before the case came to trial, Khan argued in court that he should be granted anonymity. He claimed that as a member of the Ahmadi Muslim sect, his life would be put at risk if his admitted drinking of alcohol and homosexuality became public knowledge. Despite Khan being backed by a former head of MI6 and foreign office officials, the court did not uphold that request. Even though the Tories were quick to act in this case, once it became really public, there wasn't total unity in their ranks. Tory MP and former Minister for Justice Crispin Blunt was quick to come out in Khan's defence. The MP, who chairs the all-party parliamentary group on global LGBT plus rights, accused the judge of getting the decision wrong. He said, I'm utterly appalled and distraught at the dreadful miscarriage of justice that has befallen my friend and colleague Imran Ahmad Khan, MP for Wakefield since December 2019. His conviction today is nothing short of an international scandal with dreadful, wider implications for millions of LGBT plus Muslims around the world. I sat through some of the trial, he said. The conduct of this case relied on lazy tropes about LGBT plus people that we might have thought we had put behind us decades ago. Here's the bit. As a former justice minister, I was prepared to testify about the truly extraordinary sequence of events that has resulted in Imran being put through this nightmare start to his parliamentary career. That's the line I wanted, nightmare. He calls this Khan's nightmare, with no mention of the victim's ordeal at all. Reaction was swift. Four members of the LGBT plus group in parliament resigned, though none of them were Tories. And Keir Starmer called for Boris Johnson to remove the whip from Blunt. But the government merely distanced itself from Blunt's statement. Does the government distance themselves from the comments of one of their own? Yes. That's fairly straightforward. Do you expect him to retract it? I don't know because I have no idea what it is that Crispin is referring to in the comments that he said. All I know is that in a court of law yesterday, uh, Mr. Khan was found guilty. Uh, and I think every one of us who believes in the judicial system and the rule of law uh, has to respect that judgment. And I think it's for Crispin to account for his words, but it's not something the government associates itself with. Not something the government associates itself with. Well, as long as the government associates itself with Crispin Blunt, they're associating themselves with this, and Blunt is still a Tory MP. So it wasn't long before Blunt apologised. On reflection, I've decided to retract my statement, he said, defending Imran Ahmad Khan. I'm sorry that my defence of him has been a cause of significant upset and concern, not least to victims of sexual offences. I'm not sorry I defended a convicted paedophile, but I am sorry if it upset you the classic form of apology. Well, we've been talking tonight about the relationship between law, class, and power, but here there's something specific too. Here we see the special contempt that powerful people show when it comes to cases of sexual violence. I've been thinking about this a lot recently because against my better judgment, I actually just finished off the Jimmy Savile documentary on Netflix. And obviously we also have the, the recent attention given to the trial of Ghislaine Maxwell and, and by default, Jeffrey Epstein. And I, like, obviously this case isn't on the scale of those cases in terms of how far they went, um, in terms of the number of, of victims. But it, it really brought home to me how endemic sexual violence is and particularly sexual violence against minors is in, to the establishment. You know, between Harvey Weinstein and his hold over cultural production in the US and globally, which it seems the glue of that was very much sexual violence against women. 
or, you know, Jimmy Savile and his incredibly close relationship with Margaret Thatcher and the royal family. At one point, he was basically Prince Charles's like informal advisor. Thatcher personally lobbied for Jimmy Savile to get a knighthood. And then obviously you have like the very deep connections that that Jeffrey Epstein had with political and cultural elites. It's very clear to me that there is a deep connection between power and sexual exploitation, between power and sexual violence. Um, it seems to be part of the way in which this network is kind of held together. In the case of Jeffrey Epstein, we know that, or there are suspicions at least, that he participated in these or kind of orchestrated these these child sex trafficking rings as a way of getting something on powerful people, as a way of gluing powerful people together through this kind of horrifying network where everyone knows what's going on, but everyone is kind of implicated in it. And, you know, I don't mean this connection between sexual violence and power. I don't mean it in this sort of like deranged Pizzagate way. way. This is not kind of going into that conspiratorial line of thinking. I mean it in a very concrete way, in a way that is actually very well documented. And this is what came to my mind, not only when you see the the very knee-jerk reaction to Crispin Blunt, who sort of was immediately ready to dismiss these allegations, despite I'm pretty sure having no legitimacy to do so, other than saying, that's my mate and I don't think my mate would do that. But also the kind of the vile shrouding of his defense in the language of the rights of LGBTQ Muslims, which in itself is a deeply racist and homophobic thing to even bring up in this context. But it's also on a more general level, the casual dismissal of these allegations as something that shouldn't disqualify someone from running for office. Uh, it makes me feel like these kinds of allegations are somewhat pedestrian within these internal networks. You know, we see, especially in that that comment where he kind of immediately sympathizes with Khan against the the victim within the the establishment. Allegations of these kind are not a cause, it seems, for concern. But in fact, it's those against whom these allegations are made that their sympathies seem to lie. And obviously it, it kind of goes without saying as well, when you see that initial interaction that the victim had with the police, despite it being absolutely central to how they justify their existence, the police are actually completely and utterly incapable of preventing and helping communities heal from sexual violence. In fact, more often than not, they participate in the abuse and the gaslighting that is part and parcel of sexual violence. So here we really see, I think, you know, for me, that the, the ease and the pedestrian way in which allegations of this kind were treated tells me that there's something deeper there about the stuff that we don't see and about the fact that, in fact, as, as I saw in that sort of Jimmy Savile documentary, and you see when you find out more about things like Jeffrey Epstein and all of this, that this is a lot more systemic than perhaps we might originally think just looking from the outside. Yeah, one of the striking things about that BBC interview with Andrew Windsor or Prince Andrew to his friends is that he apologizes for bringing his family into disrepute for, you know, embarrassing his family, but he explains that he had to go and visit Jeffrey Epstein even after he was a known sex offender because he owed loyalty obligation to his friends. It's very telling that women affected by sex trafficking just don't feature in the story because they're not people who matter. I mean, that's the relationship between sexual violence. Rape is, as feminists have long said, a political crime because that's the relation between sexual violence and all the other kinds of violence of a class and imperialist society. There are some people who matter and there are other people who are just there to be used who don't really matter as human beings at all. On to our next story now. In just a few months, students and graduates will see thousands of pounds added to their student debts under government plans. Now, the organization dedicated to defending students might be defanged by that same government. Here's a headline from the Daily Mail. Government may stop working with National Union of Students and report it to Charity Commission over anti-Semitism claims, Minister warns. This is part of a pattern where the same MPs who plead for free speech then use state bodies to attack NGOs saying things they dislike. Last year, they tried it against Britain's leading race equality think tank, the Runnymede Trust. 
Conservative MPs reported the Runnymede Trust to the Charity Commission because they didn't like the evidence the Runnymede Trust was presenting about racism in Britain. They even tried to assail one of the least radical bodies in Britain. That's right, the Charity Commission investigated the National Trust for talking about the history of slavery. In this case, though, something intriguing is at work. The same politicians who loathe anti-racist campaigners are now accusing left-wing students of racism. The university's minister threatens to disengage from NUS. John Mann, the former Labour politician who called for more hostility to immigrants and blamed antisocial behavior on Roma people, suggests NUS should be reported to the Charity Commission. And they do all this, they say, to protect people like me, Jews. They claim the answer is to follow the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. That was the main demand of a letter from the Union of Jewish Students, which falsely included the signatures of several left-wing Jews on that letter, including me. That's right. I woke up to find my name on a racist letter. Now, calling this IHRA definition racist may seem like a stretch. But listen, the IHRA's examples of anti-Semitism are so focused on defending Israel that anti-Semites can freely sign up to the IHRA so long as they support Israeli violence against Palestinians. Austria's far-right Freedom Party was an early supporter of the text. At the same time, they were also trying to stop Jews buying meat that we can eat to make shakita kosher slaughter more difficult. The IHRA is useless then as a definition of anti-Semitism, but that's not what it's being used for. Its function is different. It claims that anyone who calls the state of Israel a racist endeavor is attacking me as a Jew. So there you have it. In our deeply racist world, Palestinians who were ethnically cleansed in 1948 and still stateless today cannot even talk about the facts of their dispossession without being harangued as racists. 122 Palestinian and Arab intellectuals wrote about the IHRA definition in The Guardian last year. They said, in recent years, the fight against anti-Semitism has been increasingly instrumentalized by the Israeli government and its supporters in an effort to delegitimize the Palestinian cause and silence defenders of Palestinian rights. Diverting the necessary struggle against anti-Semitism to serve such an agenda threatens to debase this struggle and hence to discredit and weaken it. Now, a body representing 7 million students stands accused because of some foolish tweets sent by the new president when she was a teenager. What of the student group attacking her? The Union of Jewish Students. As M. Hilton noted in Vashti, the new uh, magazine for the Jewish left that I'm very proud to be involved with too, days after decrying NUS's disregard uh, for anti-Semitism, UJS promoted and offered free tickets to last week's Jerusalem Post-London Conference on Fighting Anti-Semitism, whose keynote speakers included one of the UK's most Islamophobic MPs, Michael Gove, as well as far-right Israeli ministers Ayelet Shaked and Avigdor Lieberman, both of whom have a long history of anti-Palestinian racism. Shaked once called Palestinians snakes, and Gove, Michael Gove, claims a sizable minority of British Muslims are Islamists. The former Tory chair Saeed Avasi compared him to Donald Trump. So what's going on here? There's an old concept important to British imperialism, divide and rule. Get the victims of racism fighting among themselves to stop them fighting the empire. Here, it has a twist. White Christian Europe, which gave us the blood libel, the pogrom, and the gas chamber, white Christian Europe, which murdered so many of my ancestors, now constructs us Jews as its protected minority, shielded from the savage hordes. Radicals terrorize Jews, they say. Anti-capitalism, anti-imperialism, Muslims, and the left. All these are painted as shadowy threats to Jews. It's a powerful claim. Conservative and liberal racists get to express all their racist anxieties in the language of anti-racism. They can imagine the barbarian colonized as uncivilized once again, this time by calling them Jew haters. This is the racist deployment of supposed anti-racism. Meanwhile, we have a prime minister who once penned and published a novel that described Jews like this. Sammy Katz, with a proud nose and curly hair, eyes like an unblinking snake. He also talked about uh, that same Jewish businessman who exploited immigrant workers and hung around in red light districts 
a novel replete with racist tropes, including anti-Semitic tropes, from the guy who's now prime minister. And now an old photo has surfaced of the current conservative chair in Ealing in London, enjoying a night out in his younger years. I kid you not. The man pictured here in full Nazi regalia in the 1980s was scheduled to stand as a Tory candidate in next month's local elections. Why does all this matter? Anti-Semitism is now a potent charge for attacking progressive campaigns in coded racialized terms. That's particularly dangerous when anti-Semitism is a real, rising, deadly threat. Our synagogues have been attacked and worshippers murdered. Anti-Semitism is real. We need a campaign against it, not treating it as a sword with which to fight other battles. We, the left, want a world without racism, where everyone from London to Gaza may live in freedom. All our energy bills have skyrocketed. We're all paying more tax. Having felt the burden of 15 tax hikes since Johnson's government took office, low-tax conservatives, they call themselves, and now inflation has hit 7%, the highest it's been in 30 years. That means basic necessities are getting more expensive faster than at any time since 1992. The Office for Budget Responsibility has predicted inflation will grow to a 40-year high of 8.7% in October, when energy bills will rise for the second time this year. Well, here's another piece of bad news, this time for people with student debt. The Institute for Fiscal Studies predicts the maximum interest rate which is charged to current students and graduates earning more than £49,130 will rise from its current level of 4.5% to an eye-watering 12% for half a year unless policy changes. And then they put in brackets at the end, the interest rates for low earners will rise from 1.5% to 9%. In the six months between August 2022 and May 2023, Someone with a student debt of £45,000 can expect to see an additional £2,000 to £3,000 added to their debt, depending on how much they earn. It'll be a sudden six-fold increase for people earning less than 49 k What we're seeing is an economic war on working people accelerated by the policy choices of our billionaire chancellor, Rishi Sunak. And given the revelations about the outrageous ways that Rishi Sunak and his vastly wealthy wife have successfully and legally avoided tax for at least seven years, even the Labour Party have been calling for more transparency about MPs' tax affairs. Now take a look at this. This is Armed Forces Minister James Heapy explaining on LBC his opposition to public accountability over his taxes. Remember, when you watch this, this guy earns £106,000 per year. Would you be prepared to publish your tax return? Um, look, I mean, I've got to be honest, Nick, my finances are pretty uncomplicated. Uh, and like lots of people, by about the 20th of the month, I'm pretty worried about my overdraft rather than, uh, rather than sort of right. any, any amazing tax return. This minister claimed £24,700 in accommodation expenses and £3,900 for travel in 2021 alone. He then voted to take 20 quid from struggling, 20 quid every week from struggling families on universal credit. But for his family, he thinks £106,000 a year is meager money, which leaves him worrying about his overdraft after earning £5,700 every month. We really need to see this as the wealth being redistributed from the poorest in Britain to the wealthiest. That is at the core of the worlds that you've described, the difference in the worlds and that you've just outlined there between us and the Rishi Sunaks of the world. And, you know, this is one of the great myths, really, of free market economics, which obviously Sunak is a very open advocate of. He describes the free market as positively correlated with almost everything we might imagine is desirable for humanity. And those are his words, obviously, not mine. This is the myth that this entire crisis is being painted in, which is that there is this invisible hand of the market, which sort of ebbs and flows according to its own internal laws, and that functions best and most fairly when it is left untouched by the state, where the market is like free from state intervention. So the free market is often thought to mean absence of state intervention, basically. 
And so that resonates, I think, with a lot of people. You know, it's a very excellent framing device because it resonates with people who equate the state with like burdensome bureaucracy and inefficiency and, and things like that. But of course, we know that what is called the free market is actually not free from the state. It actually relies very heavily on state intervention in order to create the conditions for private companies to make as much profit as possible. So that could be through suppressing resistance movements, through crushing unions, but it also can be through, as we've seen in this story, the state creating systems that enable the very rich and powerful to avoid contributing their fair share to society and doing so in a way that is, quote unquote, legal and in a way that also protects them from public scrutiny. And that is what we're seeing right now. That is what we see in in the fact that uh, that gentleman whose name I've forgotten, but he could be anyone, any of them, not wanting to show his his tax returns and sort of wanting this to be very shadowy. The state intervenes regularly in order to make sure that that can happen, in order to redistribute wealth from the poor to the rich, to privatize the gains, to socialize the losses of economic activity. So what we're seeing here is not, do we believe in the free market or do we believe in state intervention? It's, do we believe in state intervention for the benefit of the rich or for the benefit of the poor? So when we hear stories like this, it's really important that we understand that the creation of these two fundamentally different worlds, the world of the Sunaks, et cetera, and the world of the rest of us, where we're not just looking at a cost of living crisis, we're looking at a cost of survival crisis. You know, we have parents who are foregoing meals in order to make sure that their children don't go hungry. That's not just a cost of living crisis. That's like barely surviving. Um, that is not the outcome of a natural law of a market that exists outside of our control. Uh, the market is not in some kind of natural crisis that nobody could have foreseen or that nobody could have avoided or mitigated for. These conditions are the curation of the state in collaboration with the market, in close collaboration with the market. In fact, at points, increasingly, the distinction between the state and the market is basically becoming incredibly porous. And that collaboration is to extract everything they can from us in order to line their own pockets. And so what we're seeing here is the culmination of that ideology in a very explicit way. And that ideology is essentially these people pissing on us and telling us that it's trickle-down economics. So that's what we're really seeing uh, taking place here. It's just good old-fashioned class war in a very unattractive packaging, might I say. Thank you for joining me tonight, Dahlia. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Barnaby. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. And thank you to everyone else for joining us tonight. I've been Barnaby Rain covering for Michael Walker. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.